Welcome back after a few weeks hiatus. Today on Early Music Monday, we're going to talk a little bit about rules, kind of, and artistic expression, and a little bit more about Palestrina. This is Early Music Monday. Okay, today we're going to talk about rules, following the rules, the rules of music, rules of music theory. I'm going to steer clear of politics. I always intentionally steer clear of politics or like will apply it to life, but I don't want you to think that there's any political subtext because I intentionally do not. Because we should have one aspect of our life that is just entertainment, not tainted by, this is what you should believe. So, rules. I am currently composing a piece of music within the choral art form for, therefore, a choir and I forgot how hard it is. I just, I don't understand why I do it. Every once in a while, I get this musical light bulb of an idea. And I'm like, ooh. And so I write it down. I compose, I compose, I write, I write. I get hyper, hyper focused on it until it's done. And I tweak it and I do it and then I leave it alone. And then it's over. I don't have any more ideas. They're all gone. And so that's why I'm not a composer full-time, because I don't get musical brainwaves very often. Now, that's kind of a cop-out, because I doubt composers who make a living composing... Like, I doubt they're sitting around waiting for musical ideas to happen before they start writing. I don't think anyone operates like that. I think you have to you have to grind and kind of get after it a little bit and then the muse comes. I digress. So, in my composing, every time I think, "Ooh, that's a cool idea," and then I start, I'm like, "Man, this is hard. I don't want to." And I just get lazy and it's difficult and I remember why I don't do it very often because it's hard. That being said, I have figured out over the years some of the things that make it extraordinarily more difficult. Okay, so I didn't realize what it was. First, first thing that is makes it really hard for me. I get an idea. Oh, cool. So I'm going to go into Finale and I'm going to start typing away because I have this idea. Or, like, I figured it out kind of on the piano, and then I know how this piece is going to open. It's going to sound awesome. And then I go into Finale, and I just put the opening in the computer. Bam. Done. Now what? And then I hit a wall, and it's over. So my computer, I have probably a little over a dozen compositions that have just been started and are, like, the opening 
is done and that's it. And then it literally is like a visual brick wall. So after seeking advice from composer friends, I realized that you, you're doing it all wrong, man. So you gotta you gotta fight with the text. Oh, if it's a choral piece, you fight with the text, and you you kind of have some some meaning behind it. Then you you sit at the piano, and you come up with some some chords, some themes, some melodies. Some you gotta get the right vibe. For me, that's the whole. Th- okay, side note story. The world is divided into two different groups of people. The type of people who watch movies over and 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 over again, and the people who watch a movie once and then don't really ever need to see it again. I, well, take a guess as to what type I am. Obviously, the never watch it again. No, I'm just kidding. I am the watch it over and over and over and over and over and over again person. And I realized it literally yesterday why that is, is because I'm like a vibe person. And sometimes I just am feeling the vibe of that movie. And so I just want to recreate that vibe so I can bask in it. I know what's going to happen. The suspense is all gone. Or whatever. But I just want to bask in the vibe. You know? Vibing. As the, as the hooligan teenagers say. So the same thing with composition is the text, the text, when I read it, the text has a very specific vibe and I got to capture that vibe musically. But then you have to go through and you have to expand out the form. The next episode of the Andrew special is going to delve more into this. So I'm not going to talk too much about form because it's really, but it's really important and not necessarily the type of form that we're, that you might be thinking of, but you think of how, how the, the scaffolding is to be laid out in the piece. You, you play around within the different realms of the form and then you write it on paper and start writing out concrete details you figure out the minutiae, the nuts and bolts, and then you put it into the computer and you can kind of tweak as you go, as you play it, as those types of things. Now, that being said, I just laid out one of the other big things that's really important is to set yourself rules. Now, I know what you might be thinking, but rules hold you back from true artistic freedom. False. That's gobbledygook. Because there is something inherent about the use of parameters that actually open the gateway to creativity. So I was in, and I think I've shared this story before, I can't remember, but I remember being in Dr. Christian Asplund's class. I need to have him on as a guest. I'm going to note that. Anyway, and I was, we, we were taught, it was in my master's course, and I it was like me, one other non-composition major, and then 10 composition majors. And a, and a few of those were composition master's students. So I, it felt very out of place. But I had spent time 
in the composer realm enough to to just be like to just own it and be like, yeah, I know it's I'm weird. So I remember sitting there and the whole point of the class, the class was called 20th Century Counterpoint. So we were composing, we would study a composer, listen to his music or her music, and then we would have to compose a piece using the same rules. And then at the end of the semester, our final project was to compose a piece of music. And it it didn't really have to be any one of those particular styles or, or anything. We just had to adhere to a certain musical grammar. Because the whole point was, is look, style is adherence to certain aesthetic principles and rules. Rules, quote unquote. So the more parameters you set, the more deeply you can explore the single facets of whatever you know concepts you're exploring. So for example, minimalism is a really great example of this because minimalism, it doesn't necessarily matter what musical... Um, Oh, freak, what's the word I'm looking for? Little cells, elements that you use. So let's say you're using the half step. Well, if you are composing in a minimalist style, you can explore the nature of a half step to its fullest extent because there's no other elements to, that you're not using any other elements to get in the way. You are hyper-focused. Hyper-focused. So, if, if in, in the choral setting, if you set yourself parameters, like, okay, I have this text I have to use. It has to be X amount of time. I have to stay within, I mean, you know, six minutes, two minutes, ten minutes, a minute and a half. It doesn't matter. But you set yourself a time limit. You set yourself, okay, I cannot divisi more than two parts per part, so eight parts total. Because you can't divisi like Piglisi. That's not even a joke. It's just my best friend from high school's last name, Piglisi. And it rhymed, so it just came out. Divisi like Piglisi. He's really short, so you have to you know, keep it in small parameters. Uh, another example, I can't have the range go beyond this many notes, depending on if it's for, if you're writing for junior high, high school, children's chorus, professional choir, college, community choir, etc., etc., etc. I need to stay in this sort of key relationship I am going to use I don't know. You can you can set more parameters. But when you set parameters like that, it actually unlocks the gate to creativity because then you don't have to think about making those decisions. All of your decisions can be focused on fewer and fewer musical concepts. So, 
with this composition, it's like, okay, I have to, I have, I'm, I've set myself parameters, I've set myself limits, I've set the text, I've set all these things, and it, and I'm going through little bits at a time to kind of follow that process, and it's way easier. Not, in, not even on way easier, it's actually doable. Because there's nothing more intimidating than a blank canvas with like no rules. Just do anything. You're going to get crap most of the time. Now, there is genius, but I mean, think this goes from think about Paratan. You had these small musical cells. There's a lot of Philip Glass in Paratan and vice versa, and Leonan. From them all the way to Philip Glass and Stravinsky and Schoenberg and all of these 20th century composers, they all adhered to very strict quote-unquote rules. So I can see there's some confused faces out there. I'll back up, break this down. I, I'm just kidding, was another office quote. I've been studying, my wife is getting her MBA. I think I've said that before too on the air. On the air. I'm making a podcast, not a radio show. The uh, And I've been reading a lot of the articles she has to read and books that she has to read, which is why I think and talk about business a lot. So the one recently that I read is called the Blue Ocean Strategy. If you're business people out there, you might have heard about Blue Ocean Strategy. If you're like me and you have not dabbled in that world before, you're like, Blue Ocean Strategy, what does that even mean? All oceans are blue. So, they talk about how if you're competing in an overpopulated marketplace, as you compete and as competition rises... The overpopulation of supply, the overcreation, saturation of supply, sometimes and a lot of times will often then lead to either a stagnation or decreasing of demand. And then it turns into those industry uh, companies within that industry competing to just better their position and get more of a percentage of that current marketplace that is, for whatever reason, assumed to be fixed. The boundaries are set. The rules are there. The end. Rules, again, boundaries. But the blue oceans, and that's what they consider a red ocean because the waters get bloody. Now, a blue ocean is trying to compete where no one else is to change the boundaries and change the rules of the marketplace and finding places where there is no competition. So this article uses Cirque du Soleil as an example because they didn't fight for the traditional circus marketplace, share of the, of the marketplace that is what we would call traditional circus because it was losing favor. Uh, but they decided to create a completely new marketplace 
taking some elements of the circus and some elements of theater and combining them to create a new audience, new customer base, and therefore a new market. It's really cool. Netflix did the same thing. Uh, this Another company that they use in the article as an example is uh, Yellowtail Wine. It's an Australia wine company. And it got me thinking a lot about music, actually. Because think about the composers in history that you study. Most of them are blue ocean creators. That's why we study them. Because they changed the market. So I can't, you know, there's there's always composers. There's several composers that we know that compete in red ocean marketplaces. But for the most part, the ones that the average person knows: Beethoven, Mozart, Handel, Bach. I mean, Bach might be an exception. No, Bach, Bach 100% is an exception to this. What am I saying? But they all were blue ocean creators because they, they took something that was happening previously and then they kind of tried to bust down the wall to a, open a new marketplace. Either that or like Bach, where they just became the best and dominated the red ocean place marketplace. So I would consider Palestrina to be actually, now, this might be controversial, and you might disagree with me, and I think I might disagree with myself, but I think Palestrina is a blue ocean composer, because even though he took the principles that he adhered to were far, were definitely not new, we're talking the mid-16th century. The Renaissance style had been around for a while. Polyphony, you know, thick, dense polyphony, all that jazz. Well, it wasn't jazz, it was polyphony. All that Renaissance. And, but he, he was targeting, he didn't think about it this way probably. Maybe he did, I don't know. But he, he was targeting a new marketplace, a new audience, because audiences were losing favor, the audience meaning congregants of the church. Polyphony, the demand for polyphony was going down, but the supply of polyphony was increasing. So, in order to create a blue ocean, you have to increase value for the customer, but decrease cost for the company. And you have to find ways to eliminate reduce, raise, and create different activities. That's the kind of the four, the four action framework, they call it, of eliminate and reduce activities that are unnecessary, costly, etc., and then raise and create new activities that add value so to, to the consumer. So you have... How much did it cost to compose a piece? I don't know if it decreased cost per se. The metaphor, the direct application of business into music in this sense doesn't necessarily hold every single concept, but for the most part it does. Of They're decreasing the cost because it's not so complex. It's not cacophony. 
where you have a kaleidoscope text where you have different verses of text happening in different voices simultaneously. You don't have these astronomical amount of voices doing polyphony. You don't have like uber complex rhythmic metric structures which all take probably a lot longer to compose. So you decrease the cost in that way, I guess. You eliminate the complex cerebral nature of look how genius I am. And my quill is massively genius. To, and then all of a sudden, so you, you simplify it down to and you hyper-focus on the nature of consonants versus dissonance, steps versus skips. That's kind of it. When you, when you think of polyphony being horizontal, in it, primarily horizontal in its inception, versus vertical, like in a 60-40 kind of relationship, 70-30, 60-40, 55-45, whatever. Probably more like 65-35. That's not right. 65, yeah, no, that's right. I can do maths. 65-35. Um, crap, I got so distracted by my own terrible math that I forgot where I was going with that. Oh, that you're hyper-focusing on the elements that make up melody, steps versus skips, and that make up harmony, dissonance and consonance, the end. And it's that simple, and you focus on the consonants, and you focus on the steps, and you put the skips in there and the dissonance for uh, decoration, for lack of a better word, for expression, because less is more. So then when you use less, those become more significant because you are hyper-focused on the fundamental foundational elements of polyphony. Steps and skips, dissonance and consonants. And then the text, you set the text really simply, very clearly to where the words line up more. You don't have kaleidoscope text anymore. You have the text come through the texture really clear. This adds value to the consumer, aka the congregant, and therefore the church, and it lowers the cost of production, so to speak. Now, that is why I think Palestrina is a Blue Ocean composer. I'd also consider Blue Ocean composers to be people like Debussy, lots of 20th century people, Debussy, Schoenberg, uh, Philip Glass. Um, why can't I think of his Oh, John Cage. That's not to say that they just like completely, that they didn't get their inspiration from somewhere, that things didn't lead to them, but they broke out of the Red Ocean because they're operating under a completely different set of boundaries. They said, these boundaries are garbage. We're, we don't need these boundaries. But So they created new boundaries. So anybody who tries to compete with John Cage or Philip Glass, or when you think minimalism, who do you think? Well, you think of the founder of it, the, the godfather of minimalism, which is Philip Glass. 
again, for music musicians who study it, they might you might find a Red Ocean competitor who you like better, but that just means that you fall under the percent of the marketplace that they have. So there are there are red ocean red ocean is not something to be just like oh completely get rid of it that's not what i'm saying because it's a necessary thing like i would consider mozart to be just the best red ocean composer i don't really think he did anything unbelievably new by creating a new market i mean maybe there is if you think about opera maybe there is a but I just think he just came along and destroyed everybody else and owned 90% of the market share in Red Ocean space. So one of the things necessary to create a blue ocean is there's like three characteristics. One is focus a focus on a mission and a goal. So my advice to conductors, composers, musicians, anybody who, well, and beyond that, anybody who's in any business which would be considered a creative industry because you're creating something, a business of some kind. So, and music falls under that. So the giant umbrella of creative industry if you are trying to compete i would ask yourself what is my focus what is the focus the one thing i've talked about the one thing before what is the one thing that is going to set me apart am i going to create new boundaries or am i going to try to compete in the red ocean there's nothing necessarily wrong with that but you better be ready for a fight So, Palestrina, the Blue Ocean composer, really sets the Renaissance up because a vast majority of other Renaissance composers are then Red Ocean composers. That kind of happens throughout history, music history, though. Within each time period, you kind of have the Blue Ocean creator and then a bunch of Red Ocean followers and it, that the amount of time that that happens and the amount of composers that try to compete in that kind of gets smaller and smaller and smaller as we get closer to now, which everybody's trying to create a unique compositional voice. And so when you're programming, like what is, your, what is the mission of your choir? What is the goal of your compositions? Do you have this, and and that's, I mean, th this is all within the assumption that you want to have a vast majority of people or a large number of people to hear and appreciate your art, which is a very different assumption than a lot of artists throughout history where they didn't give a flying flip about if anybody heard their art. It was all about them developing their art and who cares if anybody got it that's a completely different mindset because then the red ocean blue ocean thing flies out the window because they're not caring about market share 
or are they? Thinking about completely changing the boundaries and the rules, but society hasn't caught up to them yet. Think about Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. It's, it sounds like a film score. I show my students today and they're like, yeah, cool, that sounds like a movie. Or like, you can't put yourself in that context of the turn of the century where this was like, you know, whether, whether it's true or not that they rioted at the premiere. Uh, but still, it was still probably relatively controversial is it a red is it a was it a blue ocean then and a red ocean now? Well, maybe. Whether they intended it that way or not is, a, is again a different story, but you can see the things that hold and the the people who paved the way, the first guy through the wall always gets bloody. To quote again, the great artistic theatrical film Moneyball. So, in honor of Palestrina So this is why Palestrina is significant, because in his time, I consider him a blue ocean composer, and that blue ocean grew so big that they're in in the church and in society and in Western culture more largely, then there became so much space for red ocean competitors, for competitors to come and try to take... Uh, they're a small little portion of that red ocean market to make it as a composer in that realm. And really, that that shaped the entire Western music art form, like the entire civilization of Western classical music is shaped by that ocean created by Palestrina. So my advice is, Sorry, I got a little rambly. If I were to break it down, my advice to all creative industry people is to create some sort of focus for your organization or whether that's yourself or a choir that you conduct or compositions that you compose or if you're part of a if if you care a lot about education if you care a lot about, uh, it doesn't really matter. I've run out of examples off the top of my head. It doesn't matter. Is ask yourself, what is your one singular focus? You can only pick one. And that's scary. It seems scary, and it seems like you're going to leave some holes in your education. And maybe you might. Well, not your education, but in your in your company, you might leave some holes. If you're a teacher, you can't just say, well, we're only going to focus, we're going to do sight singing only. That's not what I necessarily mean. It, it, every activity that you do has to be through that lens. Well, it doesn't have to be. But it, if you want to really establish yourself as a leader in the industry as something that's unique, having to draw, quote-unquote, customers. I mean, I don't know how you do that in a public school setting other than trying to get students to transfer to your school somehow. I don't know. Maybe if your district has school choice, that's an option. 
If you have a community choir, how are you going to draw singers and audience members? If you have, if you're a composer, how are you going to draw conductors to do your work? If you're a singer, what are you going to have a focus to draw conductors' attention to try to hire you? You have to have. You can't just say, "Well, I'm going to be good at everything," because then you're going to be great at none of it. There are a very select few who are masters of all of it. Maybe Leonard Bernstein. Anyway, so ask yourself, what is your focus, and lock into it. There's a lot more to it than that, and we'll get more in-depth into it later. I'm, I'm still trying to convince my wife to come on the podcast to talk about business ideas, because I think it would be really unique and fascinating, especially in early music. We already, If you're an early music fanatic like me, you already kind of have a focus, but what is the sub-focus within that focus, etc., etc., etc. So there's my advice, is find out what, what sets you apart and really explore it and then magnify it and go and do and share the love and expand the market of classical music listeners. That's our goal, is to expand the market of people who appreciate classical music. Because we're all on the same team. Instead of competing against each other, we can find ways to not compete, but still grow the industry. It grows the industry. That's what Blue Oceans do. It's really amazing. So in honor of that, I want to play for you Sound of Ages performing a Palestrina piece. This piece is the introduction and outroduction. Outroduction? That's not a word, but it should be. That's weird. You have an intro and an outro, introduction and outroduction. Yeah, it's real. I'm going to make it a thing. Boom. That was me stamping the desk. Stamp of approval. So, anyway, I will now play for you the piece of music that is both the introduction and outroduction. Exultate Deo by Palestrina, performed by Sound of Ages.
I am pumped. I am psyched. I am motivated. I hope you are motivated. You guys, I just get, <clears throat> I get so excited about stuff like this because for some reason, after I've discovered something, I have to help others discover it. And even if they already know about it, it's like I'm trying to help them discover it again for the first time. And it's just it's so invigorating. So I hope that you learn something today, that you took something from today, and that you work on expanding your creative field, your industry somehow. Feel free to give us a like, a subscribe, a five-star rating, a subscription, a review, whatever. And we'll see you next time on Early Music Monday.